So as we get into that, um, into our lesson tonight, again, you don't have to follow along necessarily because I'm telling you what's in here, but if you want to take notes and things, that's absolutely fine to do that. But tonight's what we want to talk about. You know, this is um, to the um, to many people, this is the the time when like, you know, Jesus was crucified and tomorrow celebrating um, his rising of the dead. Um, in this country, that's when it's celebrated and stuff like this. And, you know, there's a lot of people that don't believe that really took place. I mean, there's a lot of people that don't believe. I'm not talking just about the resurrection. I'm talking about the crucifixion. I've come across many, many scholarly people who say that um, there's, um, that they don't believe that Jesus was ever, uh, for one, a real person, or that he was ever actually crucified. And... There is so much evidence, historical. I'm not just talking about Christian stuff. I'm talking about non-Christian writers and stuff like this who have said that there is so much evidence to support this because it has been written about so much. But also, it's a pivotal point in history. It is. For instance, it's a pivotal point in history. Think about all human history. And is human history actually defined by the um, American Revolution? Do we base everything upon pre-American Revolution or post-Revolution? No. Do we um, do it by just even the fall of the Roman Empire? No, that's a very, very significant point in history. But really, seldom have I ever heard anybody make a reference to something as being the pivotal thing to divide history um, pre-Roman Empire destruction and post-Roman Empire destruction. That's not it either. Um, world wars, big, massive things, World War I, World War II, even though we've had those, we don't view all of history of ancient time up until the point of one of these world wars and then posts after. That's not the major consensus. Uh, gravity, when it was invented, it affects everybody, yet it wasn't a pivotal point in history. Um, the birth of mathematics. They used to say, you know, the, the Greeks were the fathers of mathematics and stuff. Now evidence shows that the Egyptians were predating and using the uh, many of these mathematical formulas and stuff. Um, but still, even with that, we don't consider that the pivotal point of history, the invention of mathematics or physics or any of the sciences and stuff, or even, even today, the internet. A lot of people, well, it's pre-internet days, it's post-internet days. Well, because the internet was just discovered not that long ago, just um, I remember before it was ever around and stuff like this, or even um, what was considered the greatest event of the uh, last um 1,000 years, the last millennia, Time Magazine put it as being the printing press. It made a major impact in the world. But even so, you never hear of anything like, oh, it was pre, this all took place pre-printing press. This took place post-printing press. We don't look at it that way. But there is a pivotal point in history that even non-Christians always acknowledge and it has to do with the life of Christ. For instance, when we write things, and you know, I've written two books, Biblical Archaeology, I chose to go ahead and use the, the um, abbreviations for the different dates of things happening as B.C., A.D. 
Now we don't, you know, that's sort of old school. Now they primarily use BCE and CE before Common Era and then the Common Era. But the thing is, it still follows basically when Christ lived. It is the pivotal point in history, the life of Christ. Everything is based on that. Time in history books, uh, at least in this culture, we base everything having to do with um, the, the, the life of Christ, being A.D., B.C., whichever one you want to use. It keeps doing that. So um, all of our academic in this country and stuff like that point to that, always pointing to the life of Christ. And that Jesus was crucified, as I say, there are some people who say that, no, there's no evidence of Jesus being crucified, no evidence of even Jesus existing. Oh, my gosh. The, there are so many historians that have based it, and, and there is so much evidence to support Jesus. Even a guy who's in charge of, I doubt you've ever heard of it, it's called the Jesus Seminar. John Dominique Crisson is one of the leaders um, of the Jesus Seminar. Now, you probably have never heard of it, though you might have been exposed to it without you knowing. The Jesus Seminar sounds like a Christian organization. It is not. It is not. It is a bunch of supposedly Bible scholars, experts on Jesus and stuff. That um, And John Dominique Crisson, he was actually a Roman Catholic priest who... Um, gave up his role as a priest and um, because he no longer believes in all of the things that the Bible says about Jesus. But even this guy, this critic, actually he's written a book. I have a copy of it in, in home. Um, and even in, in the Jesus seminar, he says, and I've got the quote of this at the, the top of the paper there, that he was crucified as sure as anything historical can be. Now, this is a critic who doesn't believe in a lot of things having to do with Jesus, but he says, that not only was he a real person, but even that he was crucified is so certain there can be no doubt of it. So there's a lot of things. And the, the point is, the whole reason of why Christ came, as some people will say Christ came because, uh, and he died on the cross as an accident. It wasn't his plan. No, he was very clear from the beginning when he came that his purpose was to come to die. That was the whole thing. And he told the people this many times, though they still didn't believe it. And it, on the day of the resurrection, which you celebrate tomorrow, even on that, when the women went to the tomb, they didn't understand. When Peter uh, went to the tomb to check it out too from the women's story that, that his body was gone, they did not believe at that moment. They still didn't catch it. Only one disciple actually wrote that he believed. He caught it and that was John. The others didn't. They doubted. It wasn't until they saw the living Lord that they started to believe. And that's what did it. It wasn't the empty tomb that convinced them. It was seeing the risen Lord. And the thing is, he didn't decide, disguise his coming. He came to die for mankind. As we talked about yesterday, God created a perfect world. We come in and we screw it up. And because we done, uh, we've done all sorts of atrocities, all of us here, including myself have, uh, we have all sinned. And the penalty for any sin is separation from a holy God. God can't have sinfulness around him. He is too perfect, too holy. Thus, somebody had to die for our sins because we are supposed to die. Well, Jesus came to die for the sins of everybody. Now, here's the thing. Why didn't somebody else do it? Well... I can't die for the world's sins because the thing is, I have my own sins. So I can't do it. It had to be somebody who was perfect, who has never sinned, who could die for everybody's sin. And there's only one person who qualifies for that. To be absolutely perfect has to be God. Yet he's got to be human. 
So Jesus is 100% God. He is also 100% human. He came, he took our place in death, and then to prove that he is God, he rose again. But he died for us. That was the whole point of this. And the thing is, God gave many, many indications of how you would recognize the Messiah when he came. In the Old, Old Testament, the Old Covenant, there are 80 major prophecies that Jesus would have to fulfill. 80 different major prophecies describing about how you will recognize the Messiah when he comes. Not to mention, there's over 200 minor prophecies. Now, there have been mathematicians that have tried to figure out, using math, to figure out the odds of one person fulfilling all of these 80 major ones and the 200 minor ones. Mathematically, the odds of one person doing that is 10 to the 250th power. Now, if you know anything about physics and stuff in recent years, Science tells us that the odds of impossibility are 1 to 10 to the 50th power. So anything beyond 10 to the 50th, you know, it's a 1 with 50 zeros behind it. It's a honking big number. Half a Google, I guess we were talking about earlier. That is a big number. And the odds of somebody doing uh, all these prophecies is 1 to 10 to the 250th power. In other words, it's scientifically impossible. Yet somebody did it. It's God, it was Jesus, and it's a miracle. It's beyond mathematical possibility, yet he did it. And Matthew, in particular, in his gospel, points out a lot of these Old Testament prophecies about how Jesus fulfilled them as they were going on. So we have not just the Matthew's gospel, we have Mark and Luke and stuff like this. We have other writers that talk about Jesus dying and that he was God and stuff like this. And as I mentioned a little bit about this last night, there's these, there are many non-Christian writers. For instance, there's I mentioned last night a guy by the name of Celsus. Celsus, um, he wrote about Jesus being crucified under the command of Pontius Pilate. There was other historians, Tacitus, who lived at the same time as the apostles. He wrote about these. Uh, Mara Bar Serapion was another one, non-Christian, who wrote about Jesus. A, a Roman historian named Phlegon, he wrote about Jesus and um, that he was crucified. Another one, Thallus, non-Christian. These are all non-Christians. They're not biased on Christianity. These are non-Christian non sources saying that these things that the Bible's recording actually took place. Lucian of Samosata, um, and even Josephus, who was a Jewish general during the time of the apostles and stuff. He even wrote the works of Josephus. You can download some public domain and you can read about what his description was, how Jesus died at the hands of Pontius Pilate and others. So we come across this stuff. Even the Jewish Talmud, the ancient Jewish writings, talk about Jesus being put to death, that he was crucified. And all these things just show evidence that this event really did take place, that Jesus did die. And the thing is, now this is, this is fascinating to me. The first writings about Jesus dying and being resurrected, et cetera, et cetera, actually occurred within about 10, 20 years of his death and life, okay? About 20 years. Why is this important? Because 20 years after, there's still all the people and the, these apostles and stuff, and Paul, James, Luke, John, et cetera, they name people in these stories, thus saying, you don't believe me, go check with these people. 
So because these people have, um, were, were living at the time of this, it's very close to their time frame. And because of that, that adds authenticity. Whereas on an example, do you know when the first work of Alexander the Great, the first biography of his life was written that we know of, was 400 years after his, his death. That's a long span. 400 years, there's nobody to go back now who's alive, who saw all this to test it out. Where the death of Christ, <laughs> there, there were hundreds of people that are mentioned who are still alive. And you could go back and verify. And so that's very important. So what happened on this faithful day, this Good Friday, if you will, what happened to Jesus when he's crucified? Now, I do a seminar a, a talk on the physical death of Jesus, taken from many, many medical sources. Um, and um, I studied this for over 20 years, uh, the, what a person goes through in Roman crucifixion. It is gruesome, to say the least. Now, the Romans did not invent crucifixion. Crucifixion was invented by the Assyrians around 700 BC. They invented it. It was very crude. What they did is they impaled you on a pole. Some of the poles would be like 75 feet high. And what they did, they would strip you naked, and then they would lay you down and point, uh, have a big like four-inch diameter pole sharpened at one end, and they would hammer that up your rectum, and then they would lift you up higher than these trees and place you in the ground like that, the pole in the ground, and you would be suspended like that. That's what they did to live people. They also impaled dead bodies underneath the ribcage and put them all around. Well, the Assyrians invented it. Then the, um, the Babylonians took it. They used it. The Persians, who came after the Babylonians, they used it. Alexander, who conquered the Persian Empire, he used it. Each time they're improving it a little bit. Then the Romans come, and the Romans turn it into an art form. And they make it into a game. They, I mean, to the soldiers. Being crucified Roman style. Now, we don't ever see this today. But you got to remember, at the time of Christ, all the people who's living in the New Testament, they saw this all the time. This was the principal way the Romans would deal with people. And they crucified many people. Um, in some cases, over 300 at one time. Um, this was right before Christ was born. They crucified a whole pile of people. They crucified many. And so what happens when a person is crucified? What actually did Jesus go through? It is gruesome. I am going to give you a little bit of a taste of what it was to help you understand something about what was going on here. We're going to start in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's one of my favorite places outside the old city walls of Jerusalem. I've been there a number of times. One time when I went there and I sat on a bench by myself on a little stone bench in the Garden of Gethsemane, and I just started uh, contemplating what went through Jesus's mind while he's sitting here. Being God, he knows what's about to happen. And he knows every one of us, even every one of us today, because he is God. He has all knowledge that so he knows each one of you as he's there in the garden. Now, what the gospel writers tell us is this is when Jesus began to take on the idea of what's about to happen. What I mean by that is he is starting to take on the sins of the world, all on Every, everybody who's ever sinned, all their sins, being dumped on one person. Now, I don't want you to dwell on this, but I want you to just think for a minute to some time that you definitely did something you weren't supposed to, that you did something majorly wrong. 
and maybe you got caught or something. How did you feel when that happens? I don't know about you, but that makes me feel terrible. I don't want to dwell on it. I'm, I'm telling you, don't dwell on it. I just want you to think about for a moment, what was that feeling like? I mean, I have a number of things. When I was um, about in fourth or fifth grade, I beat up a guy on my block um, with a baseball bat. I stole money. I was telling some people I was a thief. Um, I used to, my mom couldn't hardly take me to the store because I would steal stuff all the time. Um, I was a brat. I was a bully. I beat people up. I was, a ter- I was the black sheep of the area and stuff. I was terrible. And I think back to these kind of things and how I felt, and that's what really, um, really convicted me, how God convicted me that I needed Jesus, was thinking about all this, because I'll tell you, I felt when I would think on these things, it would crush me. Now, it's just me. Now, try and think, I, I was sitting on that bench in the Gethsemane, and I'm thinking, Jesus took all of these things I've ever done, and he's putting it upon himself. How that must have crushed him. Now, as bad as that is, compounded by everybody living today, put it on him at one time. Everything you have done, everybody here, all piled on him at one point, at one moment. And then consider all the people who've ever lived before and all the people are going to live in the future. All that gets dumped on him. What happens in the Garden of Gethsemane, Uh, Dr. Luke gives us an indication of what happens because Jesus had to go through this, um, this emotional thing like this. And as he is is doing this, he is going to pay the price for all of our sins because the wages of sin is death. So he, what ends up happening, the stress of this is so great that he goes into a condition medically called trematidosis. And what this is, I had to do medical research on finding this and then find cases and read about it. What happens is under extreme stress, this is more stress than you'd ever have on any final exam or anything else. This is the ultimate stress. What happens to the body physically? In your skin, you have sweat glands. Sweat glands have to be fed by blood cells. So there's little capillaries that run all around them. Under this condition of stress, the capillaries or capillaries, if you wish, they, they leak, they break open. Sweat mixes with the blood inside the sweat gland. Then the mixture of blood and sweat comes out through the pores onto the skin. And as sweat is, it's sort of oily, it spreads easily. Thus, you get a reddish color all over. Also, uh, you'll be covered, Jesus was probably covered in blood, though the blood loss is very minimal with this. It is an extremely critical condition. The skin becomes extremely fragile. If you take a person who's got this and put your fingers next to each other and just pull apart like that, the skin splits. The person has chills. Now, that's what is going on. Though the blood loss is minimal, that's what Jesus, because Dr. Luke, he was a physician, he is telling us that his blood became like drops of blood. And it doesn't mean similar to looking. It's in the Greek is as it appears as, is how it appears in Greek. So it is in the way it's the, the written language that it was in. Thus, he has this medical condition. And Dr. Luke would know about this. So that's the first thing. He's in the garden. Now he gets arrested. And he's arrested in the garden. And he is taken over for six illegal trials. Totally illegal by Jewish law. 
And the Jewish leaders are the ones doing this. And along the way, he gets beaten up. He's knocked down. He's picked up. They pull his beard. They slap his face. They spit on him. They hit him with their fists. Remember, he's got extremely fragile skin at this point, And all this is going on. Thus, when they would hit him in his face, his face would split, causing even more pain and suffering. So this goes on at the arrest. Then... After six illegal trials, he's condemned to death. Even though Pilate knew he had never done anything wrong and tried to release him, it was all prophesied that this would happen and he would then be scourged before being killed. Now, the way the Romans would scourge you before the crucifixion, they could do it sort of moderately or they could do it severely. It just so happens, as the the gospel writers tell us, Passover was right around the corner the next day. They have to have Jesus killed really fast because it's against Jewish law to have a body hanging on a tree overnight. He's got to be killed and taken off the tree or they can't celebrate. It's not, it wasn't, they didn't think about the sins of what they had done already about, you know, illegal trials, beating him, blasphemy and everything else they were doing to him. But they were concerned that they wouldn't be able to eat the Passover meal if Jesus was still hanging on the tree. So they no doubt wanted the Romans to really give him a, a hard beating. So what they did, they strip you naked. Whatever you've seen in artwork and on TV, you are stripped naked. And what they would do is they would take the person and have a post. Stripped naked, they would take his hands and put it up above his head. Tie him to the post like this. Then the soldiers would come by and kick his feet out. So the balls of his feet, the bottoms of his feet is exposed. You are like that then, only the feet standing out. Totally naked. Then one or two soldiers would come by with a, an, um, a, a tool called a flagrum. It's a type of a whip. Wouldn't handle leather strips, many leather strips. Uh, about so long, the strips would be. Some of the strips are just plain leather. Then they would strike him. The leather will slice. Remember, he has hematridosis, which is sliced right through his skin, down into the muscle. Also, some of these leather throngs had lead balls on it. The lead balls as they hit would crush the muscles and the blood vessels, causing contusions. The third type of thing that they put on these were little uh, pieces of sheep bone that they tied onto the ends. So they've got him tied up, and as they would whip, they would whip with a downward motion, not going straight across. They would whip downward, and they would whip from the neck and shoulders down the back, down the buttocks, down his legs, even the soles of his feet. And each time they would strike, it would gouge out the pieces of sheep bone, would gouge out pieces of flesh. Blood would splatter. There would be a mist. When the, some Roman historians write that after scourging, the soldiers doing it were covered in blood themselves. And since they wanted Jesus dead, he probably was given an extremely brutal scourging. So that's the scourging. Then, after they have done this, and they don't want him to die, so they'll, they'll take it up to the point of death, because you know if he dies during the scourging, well, that ruins the rest of the fun. So the next part that they do um, is they're going to wrap a robe around him. You know how the story goes. They put a robe on him. Now, a lot of times we think, oh, they put a robe on him and made fun of him and stuff like this. Well, have you ever had a really severe wound that's gushing? You put a bandage on it. Let the bandage sit there like 20 minutes or so, and then take it off. Can you imagine that? They put a robe on him. You think they gently, oh, Jesus, we're going to untie you now. We're going to gently put this robe because we know your back's hurt. No. 
They're going to make fun and sport. They beat them with a rod and stuff. So they take them off this. They put the robe on it. You can just see them slapping their back, you know, their hands on his back and stuff and beating them with their hands. Just adhering. What's happening is the robe is adhering to all the wounds. And they start to form these scabs into the womb. Then they're going to make him carry the cross. And in carrying the cross, yesterday in Jerusalem, thousands of people walked the... Uh, via Dolorosa, the way of suffering, through Jerusalem. I have been there many times, and I've seen people, actually, you can rent, did you know you can rent a cross in Jerusalem, in the old city, and walk down the Via Dolorosa? People do that. Charlotte, didn't we have some people, didn't we see a person doing that this year? Seems like we did. But I know I've seen people do that. You can rent a big, tall cross, put it on a big wooden cross, and you can carry it on this way of suffering. Well, you can't today walk the real Via Dolorosa because it's about 70 feet underground, 75 feet underground. Jerusalem's been destroyed and rebuilt so many times. So the way isn't exactly the one in Jerusalem. isn't exactly the thing. But they make him carry his cross. Now, when they carried the cross, unlike what you see with movies and what they do in Jerusalem where they have a big T-shaped cross, that was probably not the type of cross that Jesus was put on historically. The Romans used T-shaped crosses, but in Palestine at the time of Christ for murder um, and for th uh, thievery and stuff like that, they were put usually on a short cross, which just had, it came to a T. It's called the Tau cross. Um, and it was a short cross. And I'll explain to you how I can prove, I can prove it was a short cross from what scripture says. Um, because at one point they, if you'll remember, they take a sponge on a hyssop branch and put it to his lips. The hyssop branch is only about this long. Thus, if a person is putting this on there, it can't be a very high cross. Also, when the Romans come to stab him with a spear, we'll talk about in a second, a Roman spear, I have one at home. It's only about this tall. And you hold it here. Thus, the short blade. To stab him, he's got to be on a short cross. So he's not on a tall one. Romans did use tall crosses, but those for crimes against the state, like insurrection against, you know, reading a, 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 a riot or trying to overthrow Rome. That's when they put you on a tall cross. Short crosses, no, that's for murderers. So that family members can go up as you're on this and take sand. Maybe they went to the store, got a handful, uh, bought some salt or whatever. You're all beat up and then they would throw it right in your face. What can you do? Nothing. You could go up and slit, uh, spit, slap. So a murderer, their family could have uh, some revenge is why the Romans did this. Jesus was also, remember, it wasn't supposed to go to the cross. Pilate pardoned a murderer named Barabbas. Barabbas, a murderer, would have been on a short cross. But to carry the cross on a short towel cross, you didn't carry the whole thing. You carried the top part called the um, um, I can't think of the word. It starts with a P. Um, uh, what is the name of it? Uh, I can't even see it. It starts with a P. Anyway, what they did is they would tie it to you, put it across the back of your neck, and they would tie your arms to it. This thing weighs around 100 pounds, maybe a little more. And you've got this, and you're tied to it. This is what you walk the Romans would have walked him through carrying this thing. Over a hundred pound weight of wood on top of your back. And the thing is, as we know from the scriptures, he couldn't carry it. His scourging and everything, um, all the beatings, they kept him up all night for these fake trials. He was exhausted physically and everything. It says he fell. Now, just think about this. If your hands are tied to a 
patablum or something is how it's called. If your hands are tied to this and you fall as you're trying to carry this, you'd be leaning over, you fall, you're going to go face down, right? And you're going to hit face down. You cannot brace yourself with your hands. Research many medical papers on this with wounds of construction carry, uh, people carrying big things on their, their uh, backs, up their necks and stuff and falling. It often causes a contusion on the heart. Thus, heart, uh, blood vessels around the heart will burst by falling that way. It's not fatal at first, but it can be fatal if it's not treated. So Jesus, we know, falls while he's carrying this. Now, they get him up there to the top of Calvary, um, which was an old worn out quarry. The stones would not, um, were pretty much not useful for building anymore. Just outside the city gate, uh, the Geneth gate, and they take him there. And now what they do is they, they rip the robe off him again. You know, they put it on, smack him around, after a while pull it off. Then they put it back on, let him carry, and now they pull it off again. Can you imagine the pain from that? because now it is really congealed into your wounds. Then they force him to the ground, knock him down. Again, it's, Jesus, let me help you down. No, it wasn't like that. They throw him down, and now they're going to nail him. Now, Roman nails that they use for crucifixion, Romans had a lot of different types of nails. Here is a Roman-style nail. If you guys are familiar with nails, if you know what a concrete nail looks like, it's like a massively large concrete nail. It's not really a sharp point, and it's square. Most nails you nail boards and stuff are round. Romans had round nails. For crucifixion, they used square ones. Remember, they took this to an art form. Now, they did not nail it into the hand like this. Um, because, and I have seen this done with cadavers, dead bodies where they nailed a person through the hand and then lifted the body up of an adult man. He just rips right through it. It'll just pull right through. Now, what they did is they nailed into the wrist, crushing the semi-sensory nerves going through the middle here, the bones in the wrist and stuff that are here, and the, the ulnar and or the, the radial and the ulnar bones coming together. They go right into that section there. And you say, well, what's the wrist? In Greek, your hand starts just below the elbow. This is the hand. So it is accurate. So they would put it here, and that way, because the major artery is just over to the left, but they're hitting the nerves, and they would hammer this in, down like that, and by doing this, it caused a parathesis in the, in the fingers. Your fingers will turn into a claw. It causes lightning bolts of pain. You can't even begin to fathom. Will run up the arm all the way up into the neck, into the head, and down the back. And it's on both sides. And there's nothing you can do. But do you know before they did that, what the Romans often did is they gave a little narcotic a type of an op uh, opium uh, diluted with alcohol. They tried to give it to Jesus. Jesus refused it. Jesus didn't do drugs. He wanted to have a clear mind of what his purpose was. He refuses it, and they nail him. Then they put his feet, and they nail his feet also, crushing nerves. Not the bones, but the nerves. So they nailed him with these. Now, why square? When a person then is put up onto the cross, he is attached at the wrist, and his feet are immobilized. You hang, and sometimes they would bend the knees to one side as they would do this. Now, 
and to breathe. When you drop, the way your diaphragms and your ribs are, you automatically inhale. But to breathe, you have to exhale. To exhale, you've got to push on the nails in your feet. Push up your body, rubbing your back against the, the, the wooden beam of the cross, and you have to rotate on the nails in your wrist. Thus, to breathe, he would drop, but to take a, a breath, he would have to twist and turn, you know, to push out the air, and then he'd go back down and inhale and drop. Jesus only lasted about six hours. People have been known to stay alive for three days on a cross, Roman style. It depends on how severe they would do the scourging and stuff. Remember I told you Jesus was going to have a really bad one. Also, I forgot to mention to you that they put a crown of thorns on his head. Probably this type of a plant, it's a little weed type plant that grows around Jerusalem and Bethlehem. I bought this one in Bethlehem. And this really hurts. And you know, you know they just didn't do this? And I'm telling you, that hurts right there. They would put that there and then they would drive it down. Do you know how many nerve endings you have in your face and your scalp? This is going to puncture nerves, going to cause electrical pains through your scalp. So he's got that. He's got this pain, the pain from his feet, the rubbing, all of this. That's why Jesus didn't talk much on the cross. To talk, you have to exhale. It is so hard to exhale and speak. So he only spoke seven times and each time was very short. That is super sharp. Feel the point. I won't jab you. Now you tell me, is that sharp? Would you like that jabbed on you? No way. This is really a powerful jolt to your body. So he only spoke seven times and then he died. The other two who were with him did not die right away. Uh, Pilate gave orders to break their legs. They would often do that to speed up the death because like I say, he's got to be dead before the sun went down um, and they got to get him off the cross and everything. So they would break the legs. They came to Jesus, didn't break his legs, but they did the other two. Why breaking the legs is important? You can't push down to be able to breathe. And so you suffocate. There's nothing you can do. You just suffocate then. But Jesus was already dead. And we know that because John tells us that um, a report was made back to Pilate that Jesus was already dead. They didn't break his legs, which was a prophecy, by the way, that not one bone in his body would be broken. He's the Passover lamb. He's the perfect lamb. He would not have any bones broken. That's exactly what happened. But it also tells us in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, that he would be stabbed. And Pilate says, are you sure he's dead? Now, Romans are experts on death. But the centurion who came to Pilate with a report, uh, we broke the other two, but we didn't break Jesus' legs because he's already dead. Pilate says, I want it verified. Which to the soldiers, that meant, okay. The centurion goes back, takes one of the spears, stabs him. John records that blood and water flowed. Now, he's on a short cross where we can see like the X on this 
uh, tree here with the rope, that would be a little bit too high probably, or maybe right around there would be the, like the maximum height of his head. So his body's here, the Roman spear would come up and they would stab him like this into the side. Going into the side, he's gonna, the, the soldier would puncture the liver and he would go through the right lung and it went into the heart. How do we know it went into the heart? Because it says blood and water. Blood makes sense, you pull this out, blood's gonna come out. But water is puzzling, why water? Pericardial fluid surrounding the heart is in what we call in biology, of course, we just can't call it you know, fluid, we gotta call it something else, it's called a transidate. It looks just like water. It's a lubricant, because your heart sits and beats all the time inside your heart, but you don't feel any burning from that because your heart is designed to sit inside this chamber surrounded by this fluid. And the pericardium, the membrane that surrounds your heart, produces this chemical, and it's a great lubricant, but it looks just like water. So when they pull this out, the blood came out, and then John says, blood and water flowed. Now, some people today very foolishly say Jesus didn't die on the cross. He just fainted. Who gets stabbed in the heart like that and lives? That's a fatal wound in itself, but he was already dead. Jesus was stabbed in the heart, and it verifies that. And then he is put into the grave. He is wrapped very quickly, and they prepared him very, very quickly to get him into the grave, and that's where he was. So what did Jesus die of? Well, he had dehydration. Um, he, died, he had a lot of things going on, contusions probably to his heart, the scourging itself, um, a lot of things, but he died pretty much. Um, probably when he fell, if you want to put it in layman's terms, he sort of very likely died with a broken heart. His heart broke when the contusions on the heart. How interesting that is. But he was dead. There's no question about it. He was dead. Innocent of any crime. He was pierced. Blood and water flowed. He was put onto this cross. But let me ask you this. What held Jesus to the cross? Oh, the obvious answer, Michael, it's really simple. The nails. The nails are not what held Jesus to the cross. He's God. He's been performing miracles. He even tells his disciples when he's arrested, when they start to fight back, hey, don't fight. Don't you realize I can ask my father for 10 legions of angels to come and destroy everything? No. What held him to the cross was his love for you and for me. That's what held him to the cross. He could have come down any time. He could have said, this is it. Wipe out everybody. We don't need them. But he didn't. So much was his love for us. His love held us to the cross. Jesus came thus as the perfect lamb, our Passover lamb. His sacrifice, he died for us. He took our sins. When he's on that cross, he knows each one of you and every sin you have ever committed. And he is saying, I love you so much, I am taking your place. I will take all that sin away from you. And I'll put my spirit inside of you. I will give you peace. I will give you fellowship with the Father for eternity. What do we gotta do? We just accept it. Ephesians 2.8 it's by grace, what Jesus did. Grace, we're saved through what? Faith. Nothing you can do. It's not any work, any, anything you ever did. It's a gift from God. 
Because if it's stuff we can do, we'd boast about how good we are about it. No, nothing we can do. That's how we're saved. Saved by grace through faith. It's a free gift from God. So, have you ever done that? Most people know John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him. You know, the word believe is not head knowledge. It's the Greek word pishtuo. Pishtuo is sort of hard to translate into English. What it means is to commit to and put your trust in. That's how you're saved. Not having a head knowledge about Jesus and the historical facts, that doesn't save you. Are, have you actually accepted his free gift that the, he did this for you on the cross? Are you trusting that he did that for you? And are you committed to them? Have you committed your life to Christ? Because that's part of the word believe, is to commit to something. Have you done that? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time here and this, this time of year, which makes us even think more and more about this. And I pray for each person who's listening right now, that they have come to that point where they realize that, yes, Jesus, you're not only real, you are God, and you took my place in death, not because of how good I am or anything. I'm a rotten sinner, but Lord, for some reason, I don't understand why you love me and you did this for me. And Lord, I want to live for you. I commit my life to you. I, I want you to save me. And we know, Lord, that anybody, it's not magic words, but anybody who just really does that, you promise to save. So guide us tonight. Let us think a little bit about this tonight, Lord, before we, we disappear and go to bed. And I thank you for each person who is here and each person listening in Jesus' name. Amen.